Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Nahern. The next round of international climate talks are going to kick off in Paris on the 30th of November. For a hot second, the mainstream media will be flushed with coverage. There'll be a lot of talk, and the climate deniers will once again come out of the woodwork. Now, you're concerned about climate change, and you know it's caused by human activity. But the facts, figures and statistics can be a bit elusive, and the climate deniers are well rehearsed at seeding confusion and misinformation. You might even hear a friend or relative parroting some of their rubbish. And you might want to argue, but it can feel a bit like jumping in the deep end, with nothing to keep you afloat. Well, on today's show, we're going to give you a bit of a cheat sheet. We'll be getting to the facts behind the climate science, and we'll hear about how it's studied, and what it's telling us about the present and our future. Michael Mann is one of the foremost climate scientists in the world today, perhaps best known for his pioneering work reconstructing temperatures of past centuries, demonstrating the rapid warming of the climate since the onset of the Industrial Revolution. Kevin Carnes is an independent radio producer and presenter of The Elephant, a podcast all about climate change. He decided to give Michael Mann a call and ask him a few questions. So, are you ready? Let's jump in. I kind of wanted to just get an overview, like at a really basic level, say a human adult who was frozen in time woke up in 2015, or you had to explain to an interested anthropologist from Mars the problem of climate change and and what we know, what the science tells us. How would you explain it to them? Uh, Sure. Well, what I would say is the greenhouse effect, which is at the core of human-caused global warming and climate change, Um, This isn't controversial science. We've known about it for two centuries. And since you mentioned Mars, whether it's Mars or Venus or any of the other planets in our solar system, we would not be able to explain the climates on those planets as well as we can if it were not for our understanding of the greenhouse effect. So the scientific basics uh, uh, behind climate change are, are very fundamental. They're very clear. They're not debated seriously within the scientific community. Uh, The fact that the globe is warming as a result of these increasing greenhouse gas concentrations from fossil fuel burning, that is not contested within the world's scientific community, nor is the fact that this represents a threat already, and it will represent an even greater threat to our environment, to uh, society, to civilization, if we do nothing to uh, deal with the problem of uh, ongoing burning of carbon and these growing levels of greenhouse gas concentrations. You know, the the concentration of of greenhouse gases of of carbon dioxide is currently above 400 parts per million. Can you put that into context? What does that mean uh, in terms of both the outcomes and looking back at at human history and and past eras? Yeah. uh, So the fact that we've now crossed 400 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere, we have fairly strong evidence that we have not seen CO2 concentrations that high 
in literally millions of years. Um, so we have to go back in time well past the dawn of human civilization uh, to find greenhouse gas concentrations that were anywhere near that high, probably, again, three, four, maybe five million years. That drives home the fact that we are engaged in an unprecedented and uncontrolled experiment with the one planet that we know can support life. Um, and that's a very dangerous thing to be doing. You know, the fact that uh, CO2 concentrations are increasing so rapidly is really the problem. Uh, there's no question that there have been times in Earth's deep ge geological past, say 100 million years ago during the early Cretaceous period, um, uh, we know CO2 concentrations, greenhouse gas concentrations, were higher at that time. But those long-term variations in the concentrations of these gases took place on timescales of 100 million years. Uh, we are making similar increases in the concentrations of these gases on a time scale of 100 years, a million times faster. And that's really the problem. We are raising the concentration of greenhouse gases and warming the planet and changing the climate at a far faster rate than human beings or living things have ever had to deal with in the past. And there's no reason to believe that we have the adaptive capacity to uh, deal with changes that continue to take place that rapidly. Now, one of the things that you're best known for is sort of projecting temperatures back into the past, sort of looking at, at the record and, and then building them up to today to, to track the temperature increases we're seeing as a result of the carbon dioxide buildup in the atmosphere. Can right. you explain just like at a fundamental level, like how, how do you actually do that? How, what sort of tools or data uh, points do you, do you use to, to try to figure out what uh, temperatures were in the past? Uh, sure. So I, I think you're alluding to the, the so-called hockey stick curve, which is this curve that my co-authors and I published a decade and a half ago. It became uh, somewhat iconic in the climate change debate uh, because, you know, you didn't need to understand the complicated uh, physics of how the climate system works or how a climate model works to understand what this graphic was telling us, that the changes that we're seeing today in, in temperature are unprecedented as far back as we can go. And by implication, it probably has something to do with human activity. Um, but this graph is based on using information like tree rings and corals and ice cores, uh, natural archives that tell us something about how the climate changed in the deep past. We can take these so-called proxy records and piece together a picture of how the climate varied prior to the relatively brief uh, interval in time, really only about the past century, where we have widespread human observations, widespread thermometer measurements, widespread uh, instrumental data. Um, if we want to get a sense of how unusual the warming we've seen over the past century really is, we need to extend the record back in time using these sorts of data. And back in uh, the late 1990s, my co-authors and I uh, published an attempt to extend the record of uh, the average temperature over the northern hemisphere back uh, initially six centuries and eventually uh, back a thousand years. And what that record shows is that there were some temperature changes prior to the Industrial Revolution. Um, temperatures were relatively moderate, warm, a thousand years ago uh, for the Northern Hemisphere on the whole, and they declined in subsequent centuries as we uh, entered into the so-called Little Ice Age. But then 
uh, when we get to 1800 or so, when we get to the beginning of the 19th century, temperatures begin to spike upward. Um, and indeed, by the end of the 20th century, they reach levels that are unprecedented over the entire uh, length of the record. And so if you imagine this curve, uh, it looks a little bit like a, a so-called hockey stick. It's a long handle, gently sloping downward, followed by a very rapid upward spike, if you like the blade of the hockey stick. And so the curve got that name. Um, this placed me and my co-authors sort of in the center of the climate change debate because it became such an iconic result. And, the, and critics who want to try to discredit the science of climate change have been trying to tear this graph down uh, for years by attacking me, by attacking my co-authors. Um, but in fact, what we now have is a, a veritable hockey league, if you will, uh, because there are dozens of studies now that come to precisely the same conclusion. And the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has come to the same conclusion. So this really now appears to be a widely accepted result, but it's just one piece of the puzzle. Uh, you could get rid of the hockey stick. You could get rid of the entire uh, so-called hockey team, if you like, all of these uh, paleoclimate reconstructions, and we would still have many different independent, solid pieces of evidence that point to the fact that the globe is warming, the climate is changing, human activity is responsible for it, and um, it's already a problem, and it will become a worse problem if we ignore it. And, and what are some of those other signals? So you know, when we talk about global warming, we're really referring to the warming of, of surface temperatures, but that's just one diagnostic, if you like, just one measure, one metric of human-caused climate change. Because with these increasing greenhouse gas concentrations, along with the warming of the surface, we have that warmth penetrating down into the oceans, where it is causing the oceans to expand, contributing to sea level rise, uh, combined with the melting of ice, the melting of ice sheets and glaciers, um, and that meltwater runs off into the ocean and that further raises sea level. So we have global sea level rise is another metric of climate change. Uh, then we have shifting patterns of winds and oceans. And uh, my uh, co-author, uh, Stefan Romstorff of the University of Potsdam, um, and I and a number of other scientists uh, published an article in the journal Nature Climate Change a few months ago uh, showing that the so-called conveyor belt ocean circulation that warms the North Atlantic to some extent, that helps warm Europe, um, appears to be slowing down already. Now, that was one aspect of climate change that was long predicted. Um, we now have evidence that it's actually happening. We have shifting wind patterns and patterns of atmospheric circulation, which in turn lead to shifts in rainfall and drought. More heat extremes, more extreme uh, heat waves that are longer, uh, that have a greater duration and a larger magnitude. Uh, temperatures are warmer than anything we've seen before. So I could go on and on. Uh, there are literally hundreds of uh, atmospheric and oceanic variables that are being impacted by climate change. And in many cases, those changes aren't just variables in the climate model. Um, they are things that matter to, to human beings. They impact us when it comes to resources, food and water and land and national security and many other measures of uh, sort of the, the quality of our lives. So, so we've, we've already started to see the, the impacts. Yeah, we, we've seen the impacts already. And in fact, by some estimates, some credible estimates by leading economists, climate change uh, related damages are already costing us 
more than a trillion dollars, a trillion U.S. dollars in global domestic product uh, GDP, a, a trillion dollars, or on the order of you know a tri- in the in the neighborhood of a trillion uh, euros uh, damage being done uh, each year by climate change. That's a whole lot more than it would cost right now to take action to to do something about climate change. Uh, countries like Germany are actually leading the way by increasing a larger and larger share of renewable energy into their energy portfolios. I believe Germany now gets something like 30% of its uh, energy from uh, renewable sources. Um, that's you know what the rest of the world needs to do if we are going to avert catastrophic changes in our climate. You're listening to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the Community Radio Network. We're listening to an interview with foremost climate scientist Michael Mann, speaking with Kevin Carners for The Elephant, a podcast all about climate change. I just want to quickly go back to casting back into the the past, uh, the the modeling of what temperatures were in the past. Um, I I imagine that's such a big problem because you just have a a tree ring here, an ice core there. Could you just talk about the actual scale of uh, how you are actually able to find these different samples and make that into something coherent? Because I, I, I can't imagine what that's actually like to, to put that all together. Sure, it's, it's a lot of work. And in fact, you know, in some sense, the easy job is you know, my job or the job of other scientists who try to use all this information to reconstruct past climate. The hard work is actually out in the field. Um, the hundreds, in fact, by now, probably thousands of, of scientists, of climate scientists, of paleoclimatologists, who have gone to some of the most remote locations on Earth, uh, Antarctica, you know, the Arctic Circle, um, Greenland, uh, the highest mountains in, in the tropics, Mount, Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa, um, up into the, the Andes um, to get ice cores from the tropics. A pretty amazing thing. If you go high enough in elevation to the top of these uh, tropical mountains, you can get ice cores uh, that tell us something about how climate was changing right at the equator. Uh, we can also get ice core information in uh, the polar regions, as I uh, was alluding to before. Um, then over the continents, we can get information from tree rings because tree growth under certain conditions is pretty strongly limited by climate conditions, by rainfall, how much rainfall uh, a region gets in uh, the extremity of temperatures, um, how, how warm or cold temperatures get. Uh, these have an impact on tree growth. And so if you look at the annual bands of trees and you collect lots of these records and you make a composite, you can actually really start to see the climate signals in these records. You can see volcanic eruptions uh, in these records. You can see uh, El Nino uh, events in in these records. And so these tree rings uh, begin to give you information over the continental regions in middle latitudes. If if you go too far towards the tropics, uh, it turns out that um, trees don't tend to have strong annual banding. And so you lose that chronology that's so important. If you go to the poles, well, there are no trees. Um, right. So, so it's trees, only works in, a, in a certain band, I guess. Exactly. In a latitude band of the middle latitudes. But in the tropics, we've got corals and, and the isotopic uh, content of a coral's uh, calcite skeleton 
Um, the isotopes of oxygen that make up that calcium carbonate skeleton that we think of when we think of corals. Well, the relative abundance of the different isotopes of oxygen is a function of the seawater, of the salinity and the temperatures of the seawater. So you can start to see where you're filling in the gaps. In the tropics, the corals tell us um, about what the oceans are doing. At the poles, we've got ice cores um, and how do the ice cores work? What 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 can we find out by by digging up the ice cores? Exactly? Yeah, uh, great question. Um, you know, you can uh, look at the ice core first of all and just see how much accumulation there was of ice in a given year when you have that annual banding, and it tells you about changes in in precipitation. In that case, uh, in the solid form of snow and ice. But again, the isotopes turn out to be. Uh, where the real interesting detective work gets done because the isotopes of oxygen in water, water also has oxygen, it's H2O, and those oxygen atoms in the water have a distribution of isotopes. And the relative abundance of those two isotopes turns out to relate to temperatures locally where the snowfall occurred. It can also tell us about uh, changes in uh, sea level on very long time scales. So we can actually reconstruct the, the ice ages. We can see the ice ages coming and going uh, in these ice cores. So there's a wealth of climate information that's potentially available in each of these sources. And when you start to piece them all together, you begin to build a global picture. And there are various methods that we you know, developed our own methods. Other scientists have used uh, alternative approaches to taking all the information, the collective information in this vast array of proxy data and forming a, a reconstruction of climate with them. Um, and th there's a whole science there um, that is decades old and uh, has, you know, again, there are hundreds of scientists who've worked in this area and there are many different estimates now um, using these sorts of data of how the climate has changed back in time. And the interesting thing is, even though you know our original hockey stick uh, curve is a decade and a half old now, uh, the main conclusions of our, our study from the late 1990s hold up remarkably well in the increasingly more sophisticated and uh, more robust efforts that um, have been made in more recent years using more widespread data, using, uh, again, more sophisticated methods. The basic picture uh, remains the same. The, the warming we're seeing today really is unprecedented as far back as we can go. Uh, one study has now tentatively reconstructed the average temperature of the earth uh, back into the last ice age and finds that the recent warming spike right now has no precedent as far back as we can go, back even into the last ice age. There's often this talk about uh, consensus or non-consensus among scientists, especially in American media. How would you characterize the debate or non-debate uh, among scientists? Is there any debate about global warming? So that's a great question because uh, there is this huge gulf, first of all, between where sort of scientists stand on the basic question, you know, is global warming happening is it caused by human activity? Um, there's anywhere from a 97 to a 99% consensus among uh, scientists publishing in the peer-reviewed scientific literature that global warming is real and it's caused by human activity. So that isn't something that's seriously debated in the scientific literature. It isn't something that's seriously debated um, at scientific meetings. And yet the public continues to have this perception that scientists are somewhat divided on those questions, in part because there has been a massive, very well-funded, 
very organized misinformation campaign by certain fossil fuel interests, those who don't want to see us uh, regulate carbon emissions, those who profit uh, tremendously right now from the unregulated burning of fossil fuels. Um, They have, in many cases, sought to stymie efforts to to introduce policies to to deal with this problem here in the U.S. Um, And they have engaged in a massive uh, disinformation campaign, really, uh, to try to fool the public, the American public, um, into thinking that there isn't a scientific consensus. Um, It's very much like what was done by the tobacco industry decades ago when faced with the prospect of the public learning of the the very negative uh, health impacts of their product. Um, In fact, some of the same paid advocates who were advocating for tobacco interests in the 1980s are now advocating for fossil fuel interests uh, in trying to uh, discredit the mainstream science of climate change, in trying to uh, undermine the public's uh, understanding of that science. But the fact is that scientists are uh, debating a number of very interesting questions. We're not debating whether global warming is real or caused by human activity. Uh, that bus left the station, you know, m- more than a decade ago. That doesn't mean that we've answered all the interesting questions. There are wide open questions that have implications for uh, policy, for adaptation, for example. Um, how you know much worse will Atlantic hurricanes get? We don't yet have a firm answer to that question. You know, how bad will drought in California get over the next couple decades? Again, there's some spread in scientific thinking on that issue. So when you get down into some of the details, um, precisely how much will the globe warm as a result of ongoing burning of fossil fuels and ongoing increases in greenhouse gas concentrations, there are a range of estimates because there are uncertainties in in some of the physical processes that are involved, like uh, the role that clouds might play. That turns out to be a pretty difficult problem because clouds are really small. The global climate models we use are really big. And so it can be difficult to represent clouds as accurately um, as we might like to in some of these models. And different physical assumptions about the role that clouds play, therefore, lead to somewhat different uh, estimates of how much warming we'll see. But you can take all of that scientific uh, uncertainty that exists, and it cuts both ways. Yes, certain projected impacts could perhaps be less than the models currently predict, but other impacts could be far worse. And the evidence that's come in over the last decade or so seems to be weighing in, in many respects, on the side of the models actually understating uh, the rate at which things are happening. The models haven't been capturing the rate at which we are losing Arctic sea ice um, in the summer. Uh, The models... Uh, have underpredicted the rate at which the ice sheets will continue to melt. Um, the climate models predicted that we wouldn't see a loss of ice from the Greenland and the Antarctic ice sheets for many decades to come. But the satellites are measuring that loss already. It's already happening decades ahead of schedule. And, and there are many such examples. So it turns out uncertainty uh, while it exists and while it drives a lot of the research, we don't keep on researching answers uh, questions that uh, have been more or less answered. What drives researchers are answering the questions that remain open. But it turns out that the uncertainty that remains uh, because of those open questions could well mean 
that climate change ends up being even worse than we currently project. And so it is not by any stretch of the imagination a cause for complacency or an argument for inaction. If anything, uncertainty is an argument for taking even greater action because of the potential outcome where the changes end up being far worse than we currently estimate. Do you think it's one of those maybe sad things in that we actually have to see something in order to have the the will to do something about this? Well, unfortunately, there are examples, many examples, history is perhaps replete with examples of where we wait until a problem becomes um, extreme, acute, before we act. Um, and one can point, for example, to you know, the pollution, uh, air pollution and water pollution uh, back in the 1970s, you know, we, we allowed the dumping of toxic chemicals into our waterways. And it wasn't until the uh, Cuyahoga River in Ohio caught fire that we recognized that, wait a second, something's wrong here. We had to wait until a river caught fire before we recognized that we had gone too far, but we acted. And a similar argument can be made for acid rain or ozone depletion. Yes, we, we let them go too far. We let these problems get worse than we should have. But when we were at the precipice, we acted in time to avert a catastrophe. Uh, we did it then. We can do it again. To those who say, well, there's no way we're going to tackle this problem. There's no way we're going to rise to the occasion. History suggests otherwise. And whether, you know, Hurricane Katrina or Superstorm Sandy or the California drought was our Cuyahoga River moment, uh, I believe we are, we are nearing that. And, and I think we are nearing a true tipping point, not in the climate. We may be nearing uh, tipping points in the climate, but the tipping point I'm talking about is a tipping point in the public consciousness. And I think we're nearing one. Uh, and I have some optimism, as do many of my colleagues going into you know, this uh, all-important uh, climate summit in uh, Paris later this year. You've been listening to Earth Matters, Australia's weekly environmental justice program for community radio. I'm Tisha Ahern. We've been hearing from climate scientist Michael Mann, interviewed by Kevin Carnes for The Elephant, a podcast series exploring the stories, challenges, issues and ideas related to climate change. You can check it out at elephantpodcast.org. If you've missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. Earthmatters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earthmatters is produced in the studios of 3CR on the lands of the Kulin Nations. You can contact us on 039419. 8377 or earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. I hope you can tune in next week for more Earth Matters. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.